listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can also find us on Facebook. We are altogether Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener-Supported Community Radio. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Here we are, well into the 21st century, and women still don't have equal standing with men in critical areas. The Equal Rights Amendment would have helped if passed. Sadly, it did not. How much of the inequality is from the outside, misogyny, and how much is from within? Today's guest and the book she co-wrote, Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide, may help explain a small part of the inequality. Our guest is Sora Lashover. Her co-author, Linda Babcock, could not be with, here with us today. Hi, Sora. Hi. I'm going to start off with a quote from your book. I think it helps to set the table. Women don't ask. They don't ask for raises and promotions and better job opportunities. They don't ask for recognition for the good work that they do. They don't ask for more help at home. In other words, women are much less likely to get what they want. Is that true? It is so true, sadly. Uh, Lots of forces contribute to discouraging women from advocating for themselves, speaking up, saying what they want. And even though more and more women know they need to do that, a lot of women feel a lot of restraint around it because they think of negotiation as a kind of aggressive thing to do, a demanding thing to do. And women have learned that being perceived as too aggressive, as being demanding, does not uh, elicit a good response. This book was first published in 2003 and came out in paperback this year. Is everything that you wrote about in 2003 still relevant today? Well, sadly, yes. Um, There is much more awareness in part because of our book that women need to negotiate more and that hopefully organizations will be more receptive to women negotiating, but there's still lots of impediments. And even though women know they need to do it, not enough of us feel confident, comfortable doing so. And so there's still lots more work to be done. An opportunity doesn't always knock. Uh, You point out about Heather, 34, a pastor of a struggling urban church in the Boston area. Women expect life to be fair, and despite often dramatic evidence to the contrary, many of them persist in believing that it will be. Do you want to? (laughs) Yeah. We like to think, and it's part of the American mythos, that we live in a meritocracy, and I think we're raised as children to kind of trust the powers that be to treat us fairly. And the culture of school and the way in which uh, the culture of school has changed in the last several decades actually contributes to that problem for women because the culture of school has changed to favor the ways in which women learn and work. So girls graduate at the tops of their high school classes at much higher rates than, than boys do girls go to college at almost twice the rate as boys do graduate at much higher rates, go on to graduate in professional schools at much higher rates than men. And so girls think, well, I know how to succeed. I'll 
do a really good job. I'll study hard. I'll cross every T. I'll dot every I. And I will get the A or the equivalent of the A and be rewarded, recognized for my success and my contributions. And unfortunately, the culture of work has not changed in the ways the culture of school has changed. And so women enter the workforce without the expectations, assumptions, training, teaching, uh, that they have to hustle a lot more. And so A, don't know we need to do it, and B, don't know how to do it well. Uh, That's a perfect segue to my next statement. There was an adage bandied about many years ago, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. In today's social media connected world, you have to climb the tallest mountain with the loudest PA system, broadcast your accomplishments to the world, and then maybe you get some recognition. recognition. We need to adapt to technological advances, women in particular. Misogyny is still a big problem. Do you think that that is a correct statement or do you want to amend it in any way? Well, I, I think Uh, misogyny or let's say in the workplace discrimination, um, purposeful, not so much anymore or overt, not so much anymore, but driven by subconscious biases, by systemic imbalances, by the ways in which things are structured that disadvantage women. Uh, Sure, that's um, that's all obviously still going on. The place where I think social media bias and outright misogyny happens is for women in public life. So women in politics, women who are interviewed in the paper, women who write op-eds trying to argue that things should be different can be subject to horrendous abuse, trolling. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of ugly behavior that, that takes place. In the workforce, um, you know, women are less subject to it in the kind of vicious, ugly way that they can be uh, out on social media, out in public. Well, I refer to uh, misogyny as almost invisible. Uh, And I want to give you an example. I have a friend who so disparaged Hillary in the uh, uh, 2016 election to the point of almost hatefulness. And we thought, well, maybe it was just Hillary. And then he came out with the same venom against Kamala. So mm-hmm. I, I would guess this is misogyny, and it's something that isn't worn on your forehead. It isn't, there is no button that says you're a misogynist, but I think this is a deep-rooted problem that is not visible most of the time. I think that there are many, many men who believe that they have no prejudice against women in the workforce, believe that they are going to evaluate any woman's work objectively on the basis of her contributions and, you know, reasonable metrics, who do not understand how driven they are by those subconscious biases. I had a similar experience with someone, a guy not much older than me, who I've known my whole life, think highly of, going on about Elizabeth Warren during this last uh, election cycle in really kind of surprisingly ugly ways. And I thought, well, you just can't win. (laughs) Uh, You know, great, great policies, great plans, lots of, uh, you know, things you might disagree with, but you don't need to get personal about it or reject all of a woman's ideas simply because something about a woman who is opinionated or has a strong voice rubs you wrong. I do think there's a lot of that still out there. 
With all the gains made by women during the previous four decades, women still feel at least as satisfied as men with their salaries, according to your book, even though they continue to earn less for the same work. How to explain this strange phenomenon? Why should women be just as satisfied as men while earning less? Many scholars believe that women are satisfied with less because they expect less. They go into the workforce expecting to be paid less than men, so they're not disappointed when those expectations are met. Since lower expectations are more likely to be filled than higher ones, the odds are better that these women, and most women, will be satisfied with the rewards that life sends their way. So that was written in your book. Do you still think that that's relevant? Well, to a certain degree, I think women are reasonably pleased with what they're offered if they don't have any reference points, if they don't know what anybody else is getting. There's a study we describe in the book where people were asked to you know, perform a simple task. I think it was counting dots or something like that. And then uh, mark what they thought they should be paid for. And when there was no guidance, no outside reference points, men paid themselves a great deal more. I can't remember if it was like 65% more, but it was a lot more. But if the researchers left a piece of paper on the desk in which they had filled out, you know, fictionally what other people had gotten, the women said thought they should get about the same as what other people had gotten. When women have the research, when they have the data, it's not that women think their work is inferior to men's. It's not that we think we're not doing as good a job. We're not as dedicated, as committed. We really are bad at estimating our own worth when we don't have the data. So I strongly recommend all the time that you need to do all the research you can possibly do before deciding what to ask for. You have a chapter that says uh, something about a, a good woman is worth a price higher than rubies. That's from the Old Testament. But most women, until recently, devoted much of their lives to unpaid labor in the home. They're unaccustomed to thinking of their own work in terms of its dollar value. Many factors play into this problem, with perhaps the most obvious being our historical predisposition against recognizing the economic value of what society deems to be women's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a fair amount of discussion about that in the last couple of years, and the pandemic has certainly underlined that, the distortion in the ways in which we value different kinds of work. So the essential workers that kept us all alive, still getting paid minimum wage or, or you know, barely uh, livable wages, and all the work that women are required to do in addition to their jobs when they are at home caring for children. And so there's a lot of talk about actually putting um, a more robust system in place for the government to support early childhood and early childhood, um, you know, programs care, you know, subsidizing what parents have to pay and paying the people who teach in, you know, preschool uh, baby, uh, baby classes, paying them better. I don't know what to hope for there, whether that will actually happen. It makes so much sense to support families, not mothers, not women, but families in that way and in societies that do that better. In France, for example, where there is a lot of uh, good support, state-sponsored uh, childcare support, uh, women have more babies, they go back to work more. The, um, you know, there's concern in this country about the replacement 
uh, rate where white people aren't replacing ourselves. And uh, one reason is because it's really hard to have children and have a career. And since most families rely on two incomes, sadly, what tends to happen is people have fewer children. I think that the, uh, the most current uh, uh, generation is helping to lead the way. I see many young couples that share the responsibilities for both housekeeping and child rearing. And I think that in the, uh, uh, the new infrastructure bill, there is uh, some uh, funding set aside for uh, home care and elder care. And uh, this is a, something that was not even thought of before as part of infrastructure. But actually, if you want more people to work, you got to help and take care of kids in one way or another. Yeah, I always say that raising well-adjusted productive citizens has to be one of the primary roles of any functioning society. And we do not honor, pay, protect the people who do that. And that is mostly mothers and childcare workers. And when kids are get, you know, good support before they go to school, good support during school, they, you know, stay in school longer, they go on um, into higher ed at higher rates, they graduate more, they are more productive citizens, which is good for the economy, it's good for our communities. And people don't seem to make that equation. We take care of the poor, we take care of children, we take care of mothers, and our GDP goes up, we are a more productive, competitive society. So I am thrilled that there is more attention being paid to that. I'm, I'm nervous about the horse trading that will take place around the infrastructure bill and fearful that some of those really important initiatives will get thrown out, but I hope I'm wrong. Well, that's politics and uh, there always, in order to get something done, uh, should be some give and take. What, what happens, you're right, we won't know until we see the final product. And in your book, as of 2003, homemaking is still the largest single occupation in the United States, even among women in their 30s. By far, the most common occupation is full-time housekeeping and caregiving. Do you think that that is still accurate today? I actually don't know. I don't know that data. I suspect probably the proportions are have shifted a little bit, but I think especially after the pandemic, mm. many, many more women are primarily taking care of children, primarily taking care of their elderly relatives, and they just can't work it out to have a job outside the home. Uh, I think you're right. Um, and here's another interesting point from the book. Even the most advantaged and best educated women fall into this category. The persistence of traditional family patterns cuts across economic, class, and racial lines. The U.S. has also one of the lowest labor participation rates for college-educated women in the developed world. Only Turkey, Ireland, Switzerland, and the Netherlands does a smaller proportion of female college graduates work for pay. Why is that the case? Well, it's all the stuff we've been talking about. If you cannot get good, reliable, high-quality childcare, you know, if there, it, it's going to be the mother usually. It's going to be the woman who stays home for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, and typically are earning more money. So as a financial decision, that makes sense. But also the onus has always been on women to step up when there's their family care issues or crises. And because we do not have... Uh, federally mandated pregnancy 
leave. We do not have any kinds of uh, support for early child care uh, programs that are of high quality. Women have to make a choice and it is the women typically that make a choice. And they're these enormously skilled, highly educated women whose talents and potential we are wasting as a society because we are not making it possible for them to work. And as a society, we've invested in them with our, you know, the education that they've given uh, they've been given the training they've had when they come on board or at organizations that invest in them so that they are, you know, working at their potential in these companies. And then those companies basically throw away their investment in those women by letting them leave when they have kids instead of making it possible for them maybe to scale back, work part-time, keep their hands in there. And, uh, and stay connected to the company that has invested in them so that after the relatively short amount of time that women's children are so little that they need that much attention, when they you know, get into school, women can come back. So out of a 40 year career, if they are working part-time five or six years and you know, pumping on all cylinders, uh, fulfilling their potential on behalf of their organizations, their employers, it's, um, it, it makes sense financially, it makes sense socially, and yet we can't seem to get there. Um, the book is basically about negotiating uh, and yeah. that women do it uh, less well and less frequently. And uh, I want to point out one of, you did many case studies that you pointed out in your book, and one is Joan, 41, a magazine editor. She was so naive and clueless that she asked for a lot less than she could have gotten. Her explanation, she hadn't been in the workforce for a lot of years of her working life and was very young in the world of business, an explanation that might accurately describe the lives of many, if not most, women. Uh, do you still think that's relevant? I do. I think part of the problem is that when women step out of the workforce to care for children, care for elderly relatives, they think that all of the skill they have erodes almost instantly. And they also don't credit the value of what they are doing, you know, that's not actually employable work that they're not being paid to do. That women, for example, are great at parallel processing. They're great at multitasking. They are extremely organized. I once talked to a woman who had a small law firm and she said, I love hiring mothers because they are so efficient when they are at work. They get through their work. There's no small talk. There's no screen around because they need to get out of the office and get home. So women undervalue the skills that they have and they just take on the sense of inferiority or of being inadequate because they have been out of the workforce without thinking about all that they have learned and all that they still can do. So that's part of the reason why in the United States, women get paid 76 cents on the dollar compared to men doing the same work. Well, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that women don't negotiate as much as they could, but they're more, you know, uh, systemic issues. Uh, there are some people say, well, it's not, you're not comparing apples to apples. And it is true that women typically go into fields uh, where they pay less well than, uh, than the fields that men go into. And so if you compare a woman who's a social worker to somebody who's a hedge fund manager, that's not going to be a reasonable comparison. But even women who go into high earning professions, who are highly trained, highly skilled, highly accomplished, still make only about 90 cents on the dollar. 
to what an equivalent male is making. So there are a lot of contributing factors. Women are also, of course, guided subtly towards those lower earning professions. And it's also true that professions that had been dominated by men, when women move into them in force, the pay tends to go down. So there are a lot of complicating factors there, but I would say I do not want to blame women for this one. I think that the social factors are bigger than just, you know, individual women raising their hands can change. Well, there is a good news for the future, I would say, because as of 2020, the percentage of women of all students enrolled in a, an ABA accredited law school uh, getting a law degree, 54% of women are now uh, in those accredited law programs. And uh, in MBA programs, 39% of all students enrolled are uh, in MBA programs as of 2020. I think that's good news for the future. It is good news, but it's not quite enough. I mean, women have been going to med school at about equal rates to men's, uh, you know, women have been getting good law and business degrees for a long time, but once they enter the workforce, they still need the kinds of support that I've been describing if they're going to be able to thrive and keep working. And so the degrees are great, but it's not quite enough. We still need organizations to take on the responsibility of making sure that these highly skilled women can continue to work. And they have a strong incentive and that is that women are beginning to dominate the educated workforce. Just a lot more women are getting college degrees than men. And we're going to have all these women with advanced degrees who represent a really rich pool of talent that the smart companies are going to want to have access to. So let me take uh, a moment here to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Uh, the book that we're talking about today is Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. And my guest today is Sora Lashever, uh, co-author of that book. Uh, and I'm Bob Bashansky, your host. So the results of several studies suggest that women can correctly evaluate and set expectations for others. Their low sense of entitlement is reserved for themselves. Uh, yes, that is true. And that brings me back to my advice that uh, to women to do your research. We are not very good at evaluating the value of what we do. Um, and so we tend, to, without any other guidance, without any objective measures, to ask for too little, to aim too low. Uh, so I say, do your research, get on the web, call everybody you know who might um, have some insight, reach out to the career services department of the, uh, the university or college you graduated from, wherever you can think of, you might be able to get some insight, spend the time, you know, invest the time in finding that out. Another thing that I would recommend is think about what you would say to another woman you admire or your best friend or your sister if she were as accomplished as you are. If it were someone else, what would you think she should get? And that is a good way to think, hmm, yeah, actually, um, this woman I admire, I think she should be getting a lot more than she's getting, and I'm actually a little bit more accomplished than she is. And so that can be a useful way of thinking about it. Well, another one of your studies in the book is uh, of Catherine, a 43-year-old lawyer prepared to negotiate salary for a new job. She accepted an offer without negotiating. At the critical moment, she said she panicked and caved. 
The prospect of negotiating made her too nervous to go through with her plan, and she had a well-designed plan and how to go about this, and she did a lot of research, but yet she caved. What do you have to say about that? That's really common. Uh, negotiation makes everybody, well, most people nervous. It's high stakes. It's important. We have strong feelings. If it's a job you really care about or a promotion you really want or some sort of recognition that feels earned, you can have a lot of feelings, a lot of emotion about it, and that's perfectly reasonable and normal. But it's not good to take all that emotion with you into the negotiation. And so I recommend that women make their plan, do their research, think about what they want to ask for, and then get together with somebody and role play it. And really brief them about what you're worried about, what makes you nervous, what kind of pushback you think might make you lose your composure or make you so uncomfortable you want to just say, okay, and get out of the room. And then practice responses that are calm, that move things away from whatever feels like a flashpoint, that makes a really persuasive argument for why giving you what you want is actually good for them. Uh, for women in particular, rather than saying, this is what I want, this is what I deserve, this is what I've earned, saying, if you give me what I'm asking for, I can be more productive. I can help you, the boss, the group, the division, the company, whatever, uh, achieve its goals, its strategy. So the role playing really critical because if you get nervous, you plan something, you've rehearsed it, but also if whatever you're worried about, if you're afraid they might say something that will hurt your feelings or make you feel like, oh, you're right, I'm not that good or embarrass you or point at like a, a mistake you made once and you have practiced what you're gonna say in the role play, you have also in the role play had the emotion triggered. And it turns out it's the emotion as much as whatever the comment is that tends to derail us. We get upset and we wanna get out of the room. But if the emotion has been triggered in the role play, when it happens in the actual negotiation, if it happens, it won't surprise you because it's already happened. And then it's much easier to say to yourself, yeah, that hurts my feelings or that seems unfair or that makes me mad and keep going and follow through on your plan. Well, you also point out that society has a double standard for judging the behavior of men and women. We need to understand why women frequently feel punished for asking for what they want. Well, <laughs> the reason women frequently feel punished for it is because women frequently are punished for it. But what we have discovered is it's not simply for asking for what you want. It also has to do with how you ask. So in order to be persuasive or influential, which is of course what you wanna be in a negotiation, women need to come across as likable. We need to abide by that normative expectation that we'll be warm and friendly and nice and social and not come on too strong, be demanding, be pushy, be threatening. So if you as a woman can practice in your role play, having a more, you know, sort of a calm, cheerful, upbeat, but you know, not too aggressive seeming manner in your negotiation, your style, how you ask can actually obviate the need for the other person to you know, push back hard. It will make it easier for them to hear the justice of what you're asking for if they're not overacting in a prickly way to some sense that you're being too aggressive. Does that make sense? Oh yes, and it's a perfect segue for this next small statement. For women who want to influence other people, research has found that being liked is critically important. 
and that women's influence increases the more they are liked. Yeah, it's true. And, I, you know, I speak about um, this work a lot and I will, with some regularity, uh, some will raise her hand and say, I don't want to do that. That seems unfair. It seems like an extra burden to have to worry about. Am I coming off as likable? And men don't have to do that. And it's a step backwards. And as a feminist, I don't want to do that. And I complete. I really respect that. I think that's a perfectly legitimate point of view. And uh, if, if you're not comfortable with it or it doesn't feel like something that you want to do, I think that is fine. But the research is pretty clear that if you're comfortable approaching it as a tactic or as a strategy rather than as you know, a sellout of your principles, it will in fact enable you to go a few more rounds, reach a little higher, do better, and it will also make the interaction more pleasant because it, you're less likely to get into kind of conflict spiral with somebody who is reacting negatively because they think you're coming on too strong. And in a very competitive arena where people are seen for their strength, not necessarily for their likability, and that's in the boardroom, uh, in right. as of November 30th, 2020, there are 41 women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And women make up 20% of boards of directors of US companies and 22% globally. Uh, considering that more than half the world's population are women, uh, that seems pretty low. Seems pretty low, yeah. Um, this is an issue that really cries out for some kind of government uh, regulations. In some of the European countries, there are requirements that boards of companies over a certain size must have a certain proportion of women. And we don't have laws like that in this country. But that the problem with that is that organizations that don't have a lot of women will say, well, we just can't find talented or you know, qualified people. There aren't enough women in the pipeline. But if they're forced to actually find those women, there are a lot of great women out there who are perfectly qualified, ready to go, could do it. But you know, if you don't look too hard, you talk to, you know, whatever the other guys in your old boys club um, and you pick the most available male that, you know, comes well recommended by the guy you play squash with, then you are going to miss those women unless you're forced to go look for them. Uh, a big problem I see with that, though, is it's hard enough getting people to wear masks uh, and to get uh, vaccinations to mandate something like this in the boardroom where you're dealing with strong people, really strong people who do have power, uh, that's going to be a hard lift. You mean that you think companies will push back at regulations that say you need to have more women? I think so. Well, you know, that is, I think, a feature of American society that uh, business does not want to be regulated in any way uh, if they can, they can avoid it. And that's too bad. Um, it's better for companies. It's better for society if there are more women in leadership roles. There's lots of good research. McKinsey has done a lot of research on how having more women in those really important senior leadership roles increases the return on investment to shareholders, return on equity. The, you know, there's direct line to the bottom line. It shows that it's, it's better. And you've probably seen these articles since the pandemic that the countries that have done the best in managing the pandemic, uh, a high proportion of those have been led by women. 
having a more diverse leadership team is really, you cannot argue with the data. And by more diverse, I don't mean just more women. I mean more diverse across all the metrics that we think are relevant and uh, you know, that you can think of in your, or your guest, I mean, your audience can think of, they make for better management, they make for better run countries, and they make for better run companies. I agree with your thoughts and ideas. The difficulty is how to employ them. Uh, and maybe uh, top-down legislation that does it is not the best way. Uh, certainly, uh, these are the people, the people who run large companies that spend the most money in elections. And right now, there is a rift between the, the normal, normally aligned groups. Uh, big corporations and the GOP are not necessarily on the same page anymore. So there's an opportunity here. Uh, but I think taking a heavy hand uh, might not be the best way. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly open to all sorts of good ideas. A lot of companies, I mean, there's, let me put it this way. There's a lot of interest in equity right now in the culture. And a lot of companies have figured out that they need to do better by women and other minorities, but they haven't necessarily taken steps that have real results. For example, mentoring programs pretty easy to persuade organizations to do it. Lots of them out there. And it's nice to be mentored. And it's nice to have these, what they call employee affinity groups or employee research groups where, you know, women can get together and, you know, they get some money, they have, you know, some wine and cheese, they have a speaker come in, they do some, some networking. But the research shows that those don't actually translate into women getting into those topics those top jobs. So there is good research that shows more about what can work. And in fact, Iris Bonet, who wrote the introduction to the new issue of Women Don't Ask, has a book called What Works for Women. Um, and there's lots of good research in there about the things that many companies do, because they really do want to do something about this, and they're just not doing the right things. So I think her book is downstairs, but Iris Bonet is spelled I-R-I-S like Iris. Uh, she's Swiss, I think. Bonet, B-O-H-N-E-T. It's a really terrific book. Okay. Um, I hope that some of our listeners will go out and get it and uh, find out the same things that you just told us. Um, what's also interesting around the same topic, and we did mention before that in the U.S., a woman earns about 76 cents on the dollar compared to a man in doing the same job. And for other countries, uh, Canada, it's only 70 cents. Uh, Britain is close to us at 75 cents on the dollar. Japan is one of the lowest at 64 cent, uh, cents on the dollar. And Australia is 87 cents. That's a, um, a country that, uh, no, it's New Zealand that's run by women. And Belgium is the most at 90%. Uh, so, I think when we narrow the gap, we're also uh, strengthening the country as a whole. So that's a good way to go. And yet we haven't moved much in the last 20 years here in the United States. No, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. I will say about those numbers is there are great regional differences. And there are also differences, you know, you can parse the data, break it down, you know, the wage gap between white women and white men is smaller than that between African-American women and white men, 
Hispanic women, even bigger gap. And it's, uh, you know, we've got a lot of work to do in this society and we are really not taking advantage of all the potential in our workforce. We're wasting a lot of talent. And it's a shame because there's so many people out there who have a lot to contribute who aren't getting to do that. And as a society, we're not benefiting from their skills and talents. And but yeah, I'm, you know, they're quite a, uh, big differences between countries, but also, you know, urban areas it, within the US, the gap's a little smaller typically than they are in uh, rural areas. And the, you know, gap's smaller on the coast than it is in the middle of the country in many cases. Uh, women are definitely discriminated against. And one of the things you pointed out in your book, uh, when you say, not just your imagination, when women auditioned for a symphony seat from behind a screen, their likelihood of advancing to a seat increased by 50% because the people who were making the decision did not know if it was a man or a woman or a white or black or Asian. So they did it basically just on the skill. And that's the way everyone should be uh, evaluated on their skill, not anything else. Absolutely. Very famous, very influential study that they not only had them audition behind a screen, but put rugs down so you couldn't tell if you know they had high heels or whatever. And there are comparable studies say when wine experts are tasting wine blind versus when they know it's on the label, their judgments are very different. With, with people who consider themselves to be experts, they are a little less self-aware of their biases and of the subtle, signals that push them in one direction or another. And there's research that shows that you can present identical work products, you know, identical work with a man's name or a woman's name to people who don't believe they have any bias against women in the workforce. And at a conscious level, they don't. They will evaluate the work with the man's name on it as superior to that of identical work with a woman's name on it, simply because of, uh, of the male, you know whatever, uh, stereotypes that we have about um, accomplishment. And it's not just the supervisors that have to be educated, it's the co-workers. You have two cases here, uh, and I say cases because they both went to the Supreme Court. One was Diane Joyce, who scored three out of 87 applicants for a Santa Clara, California road crew. She was harassed unmercifully and took her case to the Supreme Court, and she won. Uh, do you want to tell us anything about that? <laughs> well, unfortunately, the more macho professions, and that's not just sort of construction um, or road crews, but engineering, uh, chemistry, you know, the, the harder sciences, they protect their turf in a fairly aggressive way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of just, you know, how can we be most productive and efficient here? And there are other people who can speak more to toxic masculinity or the insecurity of you know, men around their being primary breadwinners. And if you threaten that, that's, uh, that uh, can shake them up a lot. And I don't, uh, I don't wanna indicate any lack of sympathy. And I actually don't wanna demonize men here. I really think this is a socially constructed problem that men and women are socialized to think women have appropriate roles, men have um, other roles that they should dominate. And it's hard for all of us to fight against the, the subtle whispers in our ears 
you know, we're all products of that socialization. And the other case was Ann Hopkins, who also won a Supreme Court decision. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the majority opinion, which was in her favor, uh, said that uh, Title VII uh, was uh, something that should be adhered to, and that was cited in the decision. Can you tell us some more about that? Well, you know, there are all sorts of laws and regulations on the books that are not enforced. And there's also, of course, room for interpretation. Uh, I don't remember the specifics of that case so well anymore. Um, but, I, you know, across the board, we do not have enough funding for the regulatory agencies that are supposed to, you know, make sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. And I think she was, in fact, um, uh, you know, her organization was um, sort of whatever, taking advantage of the blurry lines. And getting back to negotiations, uh, fear of asking. 20% of women in a study, that's 22 million in the United States, say that they never negotiate at all. Women feel more anxiety and discomfort than men feel about negotiating. And then we've discussed that a little bit before, too. But to have a number like that, uh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, that was actually one of Linda's studies. And the joke that I like to make about that is if they have kids, I think that's probably not completely true. Um, they, they, there is some negotiating going on. But what it tells us is a lot of women feel like negotiating is not a realm they want to venture into, that it feels scary, it feels like something they're not very good at, and that will, will backfire. And one of the points of our books, because um, we have a, another book called Ask For It, which is a training manual, so women can teach themselves to be better negotiators, is to say you can do this, and you can do it in ways that feel comfortable, and that feel like you're speaking in your own voice, and that we know what will work better for women. And we have, you know, we want to guide women through that, how to do that better. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mean to minimize the anxiety that women feel. We have been socialized to fear rejection, to not like being criticized and yelled at or whatever, all the things that women are afraid might happen in a negotiation. Women's self-esteem apparently fluctuates a little bit more widely in response to criticism, praise, rejection, affirmation than men's do. Men's tends to be a little bit more stable. But I encourage women to go out and ask for things where the stakes aren't that high, even ask for things that they know they can't get, maybe not at work, just to realize they can survive no. No is not so scary. But if you don't ask, the answer is automatically no. Of course. Uh, in, um, in sales, uh, if you don't ask the closing question, you're never going to get a positive answer. So one of the other things you've pointed out is that women's strong urge to foster and protect relationships can make many of them fear that a disagreement about the outcome of a negotiation, a disagreement about the issues being discussed, actually represents a personal conflict between the negotiators involved. Well, there's no, no separation then of the task at hand and the people involved in that. But yet, uh, I think men don't care about the relationship. They want to get something done. So women then would be taking more of a risk if they negotiated as hard as they, they really should. Is that, is that a true statement? 
Um, hmm. It's, I don't know if it's that men don't care about the relationship. I think that men recognize that it's not the relationship that's basically on the table, that it's just business. And right. women are socialized to think we need to take care of whoever is in the room. And if I disagree with this man, or if I push a little harder, he won't like me, or you know, I will be unlikable. And that's risky. We know that's risky. Women need to be liked to be persuasive. And that's why how you ask the style piece um, is, is so critical. So if you can ask and push a little in a way that doesn't seem aggressive or pushy, that seems smiling and clear-headed and persuasive, then the relationship is not so much at risk. You uh, come up with... Um... An interesting point here, and it's called the accumulation of disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And where a man um, for a job, an entry-level job, got uh, 4.3% 4, 4 more, uh, and the woman got 27 more than the original offer over the long term of their employment, uh, that worked out to be over a million dollars difference. Yeah, so that particular study, it's, there are two studies, and I think you've uh, conflated them. Ah. Um, there's, there's one study where the man just negotiates the first uh, salary at age 22, and then they both average 3% annual increases until they retire, and he'll have over $500 more simply by compounding that one, the difference in that one negotiation at the start of their careers. The study that you're talking about is what um, Linda looked at is if a man routinely negotiated his raises and a woman never did. So he averages 4.3% increases and she only averages 2.7% increases because he keeps, you know, sometimes he gets even more than 4.3%, but that's the average. Now, um, you know, he'll end up with over a million dollars more by the end of his career. Um, and that's a nice extra amount to put in your retirement nest egg. Well, and that's another thing. Uh, there is other monies that go into the retirement account, which brings the difference even higher. That's right. Um, yeah, if you if that money is invested, uh, it can it can grow enormously. And then there's also not just negotiating about salary, but you know, signing bonuses and stock options and you know, matching retirement contributions. There are a lot of things that men negotiate for that women do not. And I just want to pause and say, negotiation is not just about money. We're talking about money a lot, but I spend a lot of time when I'm teaching, and we talk about this a lot in the book, that women also need to be negotiating for opportunities, that there are all sorts of things that men will ask for, and women will just feel frustrated. Why did he get that? I would have loved to do that, or I'm qualified or more qualified. How come he got that? Because he went in and asked. And so we really encourage women to think about all the things that they could be asking for that will help them get ahead. And not just the things that are obvious, because they're, you know, in most cases, there are people in charge, people in positions of authority who have a lot of discretion about what they could hand out, what they could do. And they may know about a, um, you know, a big budget influx in a particular area or a high value account that's just been brought in or a team that's being staffed up where there'll be a lot of opportunities to learn or to grow or to interact with clients or whatever. And they'll just mention it to the guys 
in their network. So they'll mention it to the guys who come in and say, what have you got for me? And so those guys will have lots of opportunities to develop their skills, you know, raise their profiles, et cetera, while the women will be sitting in their offices doing great work thinking, well, if there's something to be handed out, the boss is going to pause and think who's most qualified, or maybe I'll let everybody know who might be interested in uh, doing that. And that's not so much how it works. So one of the reasons we talk about that women don't negotiate as much as men do is we just have less information about what we could be asking for because women tend to be either peripheral to or excluded completely from the social and professional networks in which men share a lot of that information. Men just have more information about what they could be asking for. Well, you also point out that they have negotiating targets, goals, and that the goals that men and women take into negotiations have been shown to make a critical difference. Men usually have higher goals, about 15% in many instances. And if they don't get all of that, they certainly get some of it. And if women don't have any goals, they get none of it. Right. Um, yeah, there's a direct correlation between what you're aiming for going into a negotiation and what you get. And because women aim lower, tend to come away with less. There are not that many employers who are going to say, no, 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 you're asking for too little. Go out, come back in again, ask for more. If you ask for less, your boss is going to think, Phew, I'm getting top flight work for bargain basement prices. I, you know, I don't have a problem with that. So yeah, women definitely need to set higher targets. It's not that I think women have no targets, but they tend to be too low for the reasons we talked about earlier. Women don't have the external reference points. We don't have the research. We don't know what we should be asking for. And you also talk about the power of optimism. And you talk yeah. about Angela, a community development marketing director, thinks that men ask for more in part because in their heads, the pie is a lot bigger than it is in women's heads, and men take more risks. Well, there are two pieces there, optimism and uh, risk-taking. Optimism, I think that women, sadly, still feel like we should be grateful for whatever we get. And so women are more likely to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, when we get an offer, and rather than saying, well, that's great, I'm thrilled, I really would love to work for you, can you do a little better? Or I did some research, and I know that, you know, the range for what you pay for this is a little higher, or, you know, the qualifications to do this thing, you know, are, are pretty much in line with my qualifications, um, can I have more? But women are still more likely to say, uh, thank you, I feel so lucky to be able to do whatever it is that you're going to let me do. Then there's risk-taking, and there is pretty good research showing that men are more attracted to and more comfortable with what they call sensation-seeking behavior uh, than women are. And that doesn't always work out so well for men. Um, women tend to make their decisions based on more research, better information, and so they're better decisions in many cases. But simply being more comfortable with taking a chance does work well in many cases for men. Well, there's also uh, uh, some other difficulties in the workplace. And, and despite all the positive change achieved over the past half century, some employers still will not concede as much to a woman in a negotiation as they will to a man. Uh, and that's deeply rooted, uh, I believe, in our society. But 
the succeeding generations will slowly push that out. I think the younger people are more amenable to a better uh, life for everyone and change uh, in every way in society. I completely agree. There is, I think, a, a whatever, a an ugly habit, especially among the boomer generation, to disparage millennials. And I actually think millennials are fantastic. And I think they they are driving this change because millennial men want a lot of the same things women have always wanted. They want better work-life balance. They want to be able to go to their kids' soccer games now and then. They want time for their causes, their hobbies. Uh, you know, they want better balance. And when men want things, then, then things change. It's also true that millennial men in many cases have mothers who work, sisters who work, aunts, friends, whatever. It doesn't seem like a violation of some norm that they, uh, that they grew up with. So I do think younger generations will drive change with the caveat that there are studies that show that men who go into marriage and, and you know, having kids with the expectation that they will share all those tasks equally usually don't. Mm. And uh, that, so there's, there's, we still have a long way to go. In some situations, people routinely take a tougher stance against women than they take against men. One study showed that salespeople in car, car dealerships, cons, I'm sorry, consistently quote higher prices to women than to men. In more than 300 buying attempts, salespeople quoted higher prices to women than to men and much higher prices to African-Americans. Yeah, that's another very famous study and, and very disappointing. The problem is the incentives for sales folks are to you know, make as much money, get as much money as possible out of any, uh, any potential sale. And because they know that women and minorities have been socialized to be uncomfortable with negotiating hard, they start higher with the full expectation that they can get more. And that is why, again, it is so important to do your research because it's really easy to research the value of a car these days. And if you go in armed with that and some guy tries to sing and dance and snow you about how it's, it's worth more than you know it is, having that data can really be a, 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 you know, a great way to push back. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the show, uh, but we still have a couple of minutes left. And I want to uh, read another uh, part of the book, which is more positive. Uh, if the world were populated only by women who feel trapped by gender norms and unable to act powerfully and forcefully, it would be a different place from the world in which we all live. For, of course, there are plenty of women who behave confidently and assertively. We see them every day. I think that's a more positive take on things. Uh, well, it, you know, it, it, yes, absolutely. And it goes to my comment about millennials, that millennial women feel more confident, more comfortable being out there kind of at an, you know, equal uh, level with, the, with their male peers. That doesn't mean that they don't have any restraints, any sense of discomfort or, or reluctance around negotiating, but a lot of them are out there starting their own companies and, you know, busting up the old way of doing things and not only achieving that success themselves, but 
providing role models to other women who uh, who want to do the same. And, and that's fantastic. And one other point you made was uh, that it's not just in the workplace where negotiations should be uh, taken seriously, but in the home as well. And I want to relate a personal experience. I know a young couple. He's a teacher, and he's been teaching on Zoom for most of the year. And his wife is an interior designer, so she works a lot out of the home. And they have worked in accommodation to care for their uh, year and a half, year, one and a half year old. Uh, and so when he's home after his Zoom teaching, he takes care of their son. And if she has to go out, he'll take care of the son for the rest of the day. And when they both have things going, they hire um, a caregiver. So they have worked things out and they do share uh, the uh, the duties and the chores in the home. So um, we're- There are some families, some couples that are making it work and I hope there will be more and more of them all the time. I, I will say to women that, you know, you can work yourself to the bone. You can, you know, run yourself ragged or you could sit down with your partner and say, we both decided to buy this house. We both decided to have these kids and we both work a lot. So let's look at all the chores and tasks necessary to support the choices we made together and figure out uh, an equitable distribution of those chores. And that can be really powerful because men often do not see what it is that women are doing. They don't understand how much time and how much effort and how much, how draining it is for women to do all the small things that they do to keep the household running. And when it's laid out in a, you know, in a clear way, men are like, oh my God, um, yeah, I can do that. I can do this, etc." cetera. Well, um, I want to thank you very much. Sora Lashiver, did I say that last name right? La yeah, Sora Lashiver. Okay, so thank you very much for being on today. Your book, Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide, is a very important book, I think, uh, in today as well as it was in 2003. So um, I hope that what you're doing now contributes to the overall betterment of women, not just in the marketplace, but in the home. So thank you, Sora, uh, for being on Politics, a Love Story. Uh, it was my pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Well, great. Thank you.